Tonight, the church, we continue this walk. I really don't have any idea, guys, about how long we're going to be here. Um, I don't, we're not doing an, an Acts commentary. We're not working verse by verse like we did John, 1 John. We're not really trying to cover the whole story like we did Sermon on the Mount, even though that one was out of order too. Um, I didn't come in with a plan other than I just want to look at the church as it was laid out in Acts. I don't want to look at that church so I can copy it. I think that's where we've messed up, or that's one of the places we've messed up. I want to look at that church not as a template for the church, but as an example of the church. A church in which a lot of its members saw Jesus before he died. Then they saw Jesus after he resurrected. And then a church that just keeps exploding, just keeps growing. And yet, there's no church growth plan. Um, if you've been reading Acts, and I hope you have, at least reading the highlights, the, the moments where the church is mentioned. And I really should say, the church isn't mentioned for a while. Not as the word the church or ecclesia. But if you just keep watching the spirit move, you'll notice how disorganized they are. They don't have a plan. They don't... And they live in a different economy than we do, and they live in a different culture, and they live in a different society. I get it. But they don't sit around talking about growth and, and praying the Lord build them and, and give them sermons and show them what to do. They just keep talking to each other about Jesus. They gather in their homes, and they talk about the Lord. And the more they talk about the Lord, the more stuff happens. And if I've learned anything, it might be that one of our failures in the church is we just don't talk about the Lord enough. If I could take one example for one thing I'm learning from the churches ago, we get together and we talk about all kinds of stuff. We talk about programs and we talk about ministry. We talk about growing. We talk about buildings. We talk about marketing. And we talk about good things. I'm not cutting it down. We, we talk about who needs prayer. And we talk about how we're going to help someone. And, and all of that is absolutely part of our thing. It's part of what we do. But I just, I go into a lot of places and there is not a lot of talk about the Lord. And I'm talking before the church service starts, during the service, after the service. There's a lot of stuff. There's sports and there's weather and God is their politics. But to talk about Jesus, the Lord himself, my salvation experience, uh, your testimony, what God's doing at my job, what he's doing in my cousin, what, what. The, the conversation I had with a guy at the supermarket and we mentioned that he was sick and we need to pray for his aunt. I mean, the things that sort of constitute what we are, they're really hard to find, but they're easy to find in Acts. And I know, let's play devil's advocate. The book's being framed later, so you can leave out the fat. You, you can, you can trim the junk away. So it's not as if it's happening in real time. So we don't get a conversation about what they saw happening at the, you know, the latest wrestling match right before they went in and started teaching the word. I'm sure that happened. I'm not saying that we got to trim everything away. I just try to take what it gives me. And what it gives me is these people talk about the Lord and they're obsessed about him and they feast over him. They commune over him and they pray about it. And that's what I love about what we get to do. And I genuinely love this room and everyone in it. I love how much fun we have. I love that we laugh, that we talk. I love that at the end of the night, every week, there's been some, sometimes small, sometimes massive insight into the love of God and a revelation of Jesus that's, that's palatable. And sometimes it's been so palatable in this room, you could almost feel it tangibly. And I think it's, I think it's the, a testimony 
to what the Father's doing in our midst, then I think it's a testimony that would be saluted by the Church of the Book of Acts. And I want to honor that where I see it. And I want to say that for me, being raised in the church, the church has been a lot of things to me. It's been the source of some of my greatest joy. It's been the source of some of my greatest inspiration. It's also been the source of some of my deepest pain. It's been the source of some of my biggest confusion. It's been the source of anger and downright hatred. And I've had to be redeemed from how I feel about the church way more than I had to be redeemed from sinner to saint. In fact, much of my repentance has revolved around the church. Changed my mind about how to have church. Changed my mind about what it looks like. Changed my mind about judging others. <laughs> Wherever you're at on that journey, I'm with you. I'm kind of holding your hand right there in that. I've been down that road. I'm on that road. I think the book of Acts is on that road. I'm encouraged when I read the book of Acts. I'm no longer discouraged. I don't read it anymore and go, God, why aren't we doing this? Instead, I read it and see real people in the real world experiencing God together. And it excites me that we real people get to do that in the real world and experience God together. And I don't know what it's supposed to look like. I get that question a lot. What's church supposed to look like? I go, well, there's no template in the Bible. The New Testament doesn't say when you get here, start here, do this, then this, then this, then this. We're good at that. We can set up church services. Um, maybe that's fine. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I don't think it's supposed to be the same for everywhere. Um, and I don't know that. It, and I think that's why there was no template in the book of Acts. Here's how you're supposed to do it. Because they didn't know how you were supposed to do it. And so neither do we. So saying all that, I don't know where we're going to end, but I know that tonight is a lesson that was in my heart before we ever got started on this. This was one of them that I thought, whatever you do, you're going to do this lesson because for me, this is a pivotal moment in the book of Acts. And I subtitled tonight, Get Out of Town. And the reason for that is because this is a message that the church had to learn in the book of Acts. Get out of town. Where did they start? Jerusalem, go tarry in Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father. And then the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Ghost fell and they stayed in Jerusalem the next chapter and they stayed in Jerusalem the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter. And I'm not exaggerating. They just stay in Jerusalem because it's easy to just stay in your spot and grow and stay in your spot and be blessed and stay in your spot and uh, see what God does next. But that was not the Christian mandate was to set in your spot. The Christian mandate that they were given was go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now they can say, well, that's the evangelist's job. That's missionary's job. But really it's the ecclesia. It's the church. We are a transient thing. We are moving around. We are not just an immobile thing. When we, where we can't do the moving ourselves, we honor people to go move on our behalf. We send out ministers or we send out ministries. And so the church needed to get out of town. Tonight, we're going to watch the moment where they get out of Jerusalem, finally. And here's the fascinating thing to me. They don't just walk out voluntarily because they had a good prayer meeting and went, Holy Ghost said we should go out and preach the gospel. I think that's what the Holy Ghost wanted to do, but the Holy Ghost doesn't always get his way. And so I want to explore the idea tonight that it's possible that things happen to us that appear to be attacks of the devil they appear to be the cares of this life, and maybe they are. But should we take those things and allow them to shape us and be the impetus for our next move? With all of that said, I haven't read any scripture, and I'm not going to for a moment. Instead, I'm going to do something unusual tonight. Um, 
I am done with my new book, Greater Than Jonah. I've written my last word of the 12th chapter. I've edited the last word of the 12th chapter. And I feel good about finishing. I need to write a conclusion. I've got editors editing. The first 50% of the book is edited, cleaned up, done, finished. The rest of it's still being worked on. Um, and so one of my edits came back this week and I was working through the sixth chapter and I was rereading, freshening, fixing. And it struck me that that's right where we are on Tuesday night now, which is weird because Jonah isn't in the book of Acts, I know. So why in the world are you there in the book of Acts? Well, because my Jonah look is using Jonah as a vehicle to say a lot of other things. And so here's the nutshell. Jonah and Peter have a very parallel tract. Jonah hears from God, goes to Joppa. He's supposed to go preach to Gentiles. He runs. Peter goes to Joppa, is supposed to go preach to Gentiles, and he doesn't run. And Peter's story in the book of Acts is a redemption of the Jonah story. Jonah turns left, Peter turns right from Joppa. And that's how they both, and the Bible doesn't do that on accident, by the way. You're supposed to think Jonah when you read Peter at Joppa because you had another character at Joppa that was supposed to preach to Gentiles. Peter gets right what Jonah gets wrong. And so in the middle of that, I take a little time in that chapter and I describe how the church had sort of stalled out in Jerusalem. And they were supposed to go out, but they weren't going out. I want to read for you a few paragraphs from what will be the sixth chapter of my book, Greater Than Jonah. Don't worry about trying to copy it all down. The screens are long. These are literally four consecutive paragraphs from my book. So it's, unless there's an edit I don't foresee, this is the way it'll look when it hits print. But I, I thought I would do this as a way of introducing our text and getting us into this moment. Like ripples on a pond, the wave of the gospel was to expand outward from the epicenter of Jerusalem. In the early days after Pentecost, we find Peter and John at the temple in Jerusalem healing the sick and convincing their Jewish brethren of the resurrection of the dead in Christ. Then they are taken before the Sadducees, the captain of the temple, evidence that their ministry centers on the Jewish place of worship. And by the time we arrive at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the church is still in Jerusalem and is taken to the denouncement of private possessions, choosing to live a communal ex existence. Some scholars take this as evidence that the disciples were certain the world was about to end. There was no need for personal investments, so much for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Just a paragraph, kind of, we actually have done this here on Tuesday night. We've walked you right up through that fourth chapter. We even walked you right through the Ananias and Sapphira story. In the next screen. It seems risky that God would hinge the proclamation of the gospel on the willingness and faithfulness of 120 people in the upper room at Pentecost. There had been 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, meaning that about 75% of them ignored his instructions to tarry in Jerusalem. That kind of loss rate meant that the church was only one, was only two or three instructions away from extinction. Basically what I mean by that is if we keep going down every time God tells them to do something, he can't tell them to do but about two more things. There's not going to be anybody left. If we're going to have that many people reject what God tells them to do. It fills me with awe to know that God had no backup plan. This has struck me so hardcore lately, reading the book of Acts. God has no backup plan. His church was his mouthpiece, and she will survive. When Peter preached the first sermon at Pentecost, 
3,000 people were filled with the Spirit and the church, already an endangered species, multiplied times 25 in one sermon. So God, with no backup plan, pours into the church the Holy Spirit. And I, I thought if they continue this downslide, this regression towards nothingness, what's God going to do if they don't make it? And one of the things that's encouraged me and strengthened me in this hour, and this is something we'll get into tonight, in this hour of press around us, is that the church survives all of this stuff. If the church can survive that kind of loss rate in the beginning, and the church can survive that and, and have that sort of initial explosion, there's a reason we're still here in 2,000 years. There's a reason why the church survives. It's not because smart people doing smart things, preaching slick sermons, but because the power of the Holy Spirit indwells that church, even in the midst of her errors, because this isn't a church full of doing the right thing. And so it gives me hope. It gives me hope in the midst of churches we might even call quote unquote bad or mixture or dead or whatever adjectives we like to throw at the church, that there's hope in the midst of those places as well. The success at winning their own people was overwhelming and kept them preaching, teaching and healing in the streets and synagogues of Jerusalem. Why run away from success? By Acts 5, people were coming into Jerusalem from the surrounding towns and villages looking for healing and responding to the gospel. There was a growing storm of dissent around the movement, first from the priesthood, then the Sadducees and the high priest himself. Finally, the Hellenists, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, and the Cilicians all revolted against the young church. Here's our question. Was the persecution of the enemy bent on stopping the propagation of the gospel? Or was this a storm meant to press the church into their mandate? And that's the kind of question that I bring to the text when I read this to say, sometimes we're blaming things on the devil or we're saying the enemy's out to get us. And yet if we trace this thing back just a little bit farther, the church was not supposed to still be here in Jerusalem. You're supposed to get out and go take the gospel. What are you doing? And so here comes this heavy persecution against the church. And now she's getting pressed on every side. And, and as she's pressed, she had to start to wonder, is this the end? Because she already thought by Acts 4 she was living at the very end of time. And so she goes, is this the end? I mean, is this when it's all going to come down? Is this the way that it's supposed to be? And yet there's this incredible turn that happens right there at, the, at, at like the first quarter mark, or the third mark of the book of Acts, where something happens that's so vital, so important. And it involves this character, Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr for the cause. His death at the end of Acts 7 was the spark that lit the powder keg. Considering Christ's final instruction that they were to begin in Jerusalem, then take the gospel outward to Judea and Samaria and finally to the ends of the earth. I consider the first four verses of Acts 8 to be among the most important for my personal salvation in the whole of the New Testament. And that's a big statement. I've felt that way for a long time. I just felt like in this moment, this is the way to say this, to get us up to this point that I think personal salvation, and I, and I do believe in more than a personal salvation. Personal salvation is beautiful and wonderful. There's a corporate aspect to the church, yes. But I don't think we would be here today if the first four chapters of Acts don't happen. Let's read them. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was consenting to his death at that time. His death, by the way, is Stephen. Stephen just died, the end of the seventh chapter. Here's chapter 8. The writer didn't break it into chapters, by the way. It's probably a really bad chapter break. 
because you're starting with, he consented to his death, you don't know who his is. Stephen. Saul consents to Stephen's death. You've been introduced to the, the villain of the book of Acts, by the way, is Saul. It's interesting that the book of Acts has as its villain the same guy that it has as its hero. Saul, who will be converted in the next couple of chapters and become Paul. Saul is the, the Darth Vader of the first eight chapters of the book of Acts and the Luke Skywalker of the last 20 chapters of the book of Acts in so many respects. He's consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution rose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Pause right here. What did God say was going to happen when you received the Holy Spirit? You shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. When the persecution hits the church at Jerusalem, they are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. You're going to get out of this town whether you like it or not. Seems to be, in my opinion, what the Holy Spirit is saying in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And 2, is he's saying, I told you that the Holy Spirit was not for your personal joy and pat each other on the back and speak in tongues over one another and prophesy over each other all the time and build big churches. I told you to take this thing out, to get out there and go tell other people about it, and you guys have refused. Now, here comes persecution. And what we could do is look at the persecution and go, uh, it's the devil trying to do this to me. Or we could run the other way and go, it's God trying to persecute his church. Or we could just say, you're going to get out of town one way or the other. You're either going to get out of town because you take a heart of love to the Judeans and the Samaritans in the uttermost part of the earth. Or you're going to get squeezed. But either way, the church can't sit in one spot. She's just not allowed. And that's because the Holy Spirit can't be contained. You don't get to hold on to the Holy Spirit. You, you, don't, you no more get to hold on to the Holy Spirit than you get to tell the Holy Spirit what He gets to do. Who He gets to fill. Who He gets to save. What gifts He gets to hand out. How He does His business. And, and if we can't tell the Holy Spirit how He's going to do His business, who gets saved, who's in, who's out, how are we going to hold on to this? We can't. And so we, we have to lay it all at His feet, trust that He knows what He's doing, move out of Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, but notice who doesn't go. So we, even though the Holy Spirit, this persecution is pressing the church, get out of Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria. The apostles don't go. They send everybody else out. So the apostles stay in Jerusalem and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. The reason I say this is the most important set of verses to my personal salvation is verse 4 is the reason that you finally hear the gospel. Because the people that were squeezed and headed out didn't just head out. They went out preaching the gospel. And where are they going to go? They're going to go to Judea and Samaria and eventually the uttermost parts of the earth, and they're going to get on boats, and they're going to cross oceans, and they're going to learn different languages, and they're going to print their scriptures in different, different languages. And the propagation of the church is going to happen because he wasn't allowed to sit in the same spot. And every persecution that squeezes a church, we can call it the devil, we can say it's the, the evil one, we can call it 
conspiracy, we can call it politics, whatever. Every persecution, I don't, quite frankly, I don't even care where it comes from. It's good for the church because it squeezes us out of where we are and forces us into where we don't want to go. Let's be really honest, folks. It's been really, really easy to be a Christian in America. It doesn't cost you anything. In fact, it's a prosperity gospel land. Whether you're a prosperity gospel Christian or not, it's the gospel that pervades the American pulpit. It's the, it's the gospel that if you accept Jesus, you live in the land of favor, good things are going to happen to you. Sometimes bad things will happen to you, but that's the devil. Just rebuke him in Jesus' name. What's supposed to happen to you are good things, great things, wonderful things, awesome things, because you are the people of God. You are the saved, and you're part of the church of Jesus Christ. And better yet, you're part of the American church of Jesus Christ. And that's the highest form of being part of the church that you can be a part of. And we've heard that so much that we have grown soft at almost every perceived persecution. Because we haven't had a real one. It's been really easy to be a Christian. It doesn't cost you anything. In fact, it's really good for your career. It's good for your politics. It's good for your resume. It's good for your job. To be able to say, I go here, I know Pastor so-and-so, I'm part of this ministry, this will really help. This will get me my loan, this will get me my car, this will get me in that door. And that has, because of that, I'm not, I'm not cutting it down. What, well, what else are we going to do? I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for that there's supposed to be some sort of counter to that. But the reason I bring that up is it's so difficult for us to understand the church of the book of Acts. And it's also so difficult for us to really understand persecution because I don't know that we've ever really felt any of it. I don't know that we've ever really been squeezed for our faith. And I honest to God think it's good for us when we do. I think it squeezes out what parts of us aren't real and we get rid of it. And I think it opens us up to the reality of whether or not we're in this for the right cause, if whether or not we're really serving him or whether or not we're really following him. I think it exposes us to the reality of whether or not we want to be a part of this every time we get any sort of persecution, any sort of squeeze. I'm thankful for that fourth verse because those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word, that was their response. Now, what bugs me is if we were in verse 4, and I know, I'm, I know there's no way to prove this. I just wonder, because any slight that we have, we, we don't go out preaching the word. We come out swinging in response. I mean, if we were getting squeezed and persecuted, we'd call our congressman, try to get some laws passed and bend things our way. But in the fourth verse, the church just went out and shared the gospel. Now, here's where I'm at with this. I think it's because they knew their mandate and they knew they weren't doing it. Think about that for a second. They knew their mandate and they knew they weren't doing it. So when they got squeezed, what'd they look at that as? Chance to get started. I wish we had taken the last two years in the American church when we finally, finally got some form of pushback as a church. I wish we had taken that opportunity and went, we're not doing our mandate. Let's go do our mandate. 
But instead, I fear that rather than taking verse 4 and going out and spreading the gospel every way we could, and we did in some ways, I fear that we fought back. Because what we've learned is that if you're powerful, you fight back against oppression, persecution, and tribulation. You fight back to get your rights. You fight back to get ahead. And if I have found anything that we don't resemble the Church of Acts, it is that when the Church of Acts got squeezed, it woke up and said, we had a mandate. It's time to go do the mandate. And I wonder if we remember what our mandate is. See, we are not saved. (laughs) We are not the church so that we can grow, so that we can get bigger, so that we can get wealthier, so that we can get stuff, so that we can have the world off our backs. We are disciples of Christ intending to show the world what the kingdom looks like. And I don't mean through finances and stuff and mansions and cars. I mean through loving the unlovable and how we treat our enemy. This is the kingdom way. I hope that our squeeze brings love out of us rather than opposition out of us. Every time we get squeezed, every time we get pressed, our mandate should show back up. What were we supposed to be doing? Loving our neighbor as ourself. Are we doing that? Maybe we're not doing it enough. Let's go love our neighbor as ourself. But I'm afraid that when we get squeezed, we look around and try to figure out where we can get our rights back. I'm afraid that when we get squeezed, we look around and try to figure out who's in power now. And I know we live in a different world than they lived in, but we don't live with a different call than they lived with. And the call is bigger than the world. And the call is bigger than the culture and bigger than the society. And we joined the ecclesia, the called out ones, because we believed in a resurrected Christ and we thought he was worth talking about. He was worth sharing. Get out of town, church. We have built little communities of safety and security. And we walk into the house of God and our thoughts are, are we safe and are we secure? And I don't know that the early church could have ever comprehended the idea that coming in together would be a place of safety and security. They thought it was risky to follow a man who died as a criminal. They thought it was risky to lay your life down for your neighbor and for your enemy and to pray for your persecutor. And you want to know why they thought it was risky? Because it's risky to love your enemy. It's risky to turn your other cheek. It's risky to be squeezed. And what comes out is supposed to be that love, that affection, that pouring out for the world outside that was supposed to be my call in the first place. I wish we would embrace persecution. It's why I think when you watch Paul, he does start to embrace it. He starts to talk about how important that it was and that it is because what it did was it brought out in him the mandate of what he was supposed to do. I think there was a river I want to jump ahead a little bit in where I was in that chapter, and I want to lay just a couple other paragraphs out for you. One's just going to introduce another passage from Acts, and another one's going to kind of land us tonight. Because I think there's a river of God's love that flows through the Bible if you'll watch for it. You don't even have to watch that hard. (coughs) Jesus is just the example of it, walking and talking. He's like the physical example of the river of God's love. But if you'll watch it through the Old Testament, you can see the river of God's love and how it flows. Um, And it always incorporates the other. I use the other with a capital O here because I do that a little bit in this book because I want to identify the fact that there's always someone else out there that God's wanting to take us to. The early church was slow to jump into the river of God's love for the others. They could have seen such a gospel as too deep. 
for their religious comprehension, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I think their reluctance had more to do with the shift in temperature. You see, our skin bristles in a quick change of environment. Acts 11.19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. The forced scattering worked. It got them out of Jerusalem. But even once they left Jerusalem, they could not comprehend that they were supposed to deliver the message to the natives of that land. They just kept going to their own synagogues. They'd come into a town outside of Jerusalem, they'd go straight to the Jewish synagogue and tell their Jewish brothers about Jesus. They did not comprehend that if they went to Samaria, they were supposed to talk to Samaritans. They went to Phoenicia, they were supposed to talk to Phoenicians. They went to Greece, they were supposed to talk to Greeks. They just kept running in looking for their own. It's, it's kind of like us running in asking, is there any believers here? I want to work in a place full of Christians. You ever heard that? Yeah, I need a job, Lord, give me a job, but I want to work in a place full of believers. Because what I, what I really want to do is create my own little zone so I don't have to be confronted with the people on the outside. I think there's a little bit of that. No matter how far they wandered from the Jerusalem, they always sought out their own because it takes a little time to warm up to the call. Now, I put quotes right here. This is Acts 11:19. Let's read this. Acts 11:19. Those who were scattered after the persecution, we just read that persecution, that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they preached the word to no one but the Jews only. So they're out. But the man, they're racists. <laughs> I mean, I know we don't like to call that what that is, but they preferred their race. It was the only people they thought deserved the message of the Savior, the Messiah is for Jews only. That, that message takes half the book of Acts to get rid of, by the way. Some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they'd come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. So some of the Cyprus and Cyrenian Jews, once they got the gospel, they went out and they start kind of preaching to the Greeks a little bit. So once you get out of that first generation church that's kind of build their own thing, the next generation pushes the envelope. Let me say that again. The next generation always pushes the envelope. And the older generation always hates it. This is never going to go over good. As you go to the young people, they don't, they don't know. They're just, they're just full of fire, but they don't have the knowledge. And yet it's not, I'm, I'm finding it in the book of Acts. And so when you get that next generation that gets the gospel, they don't know the rules. Wait, you're not supposed to go talk to the Hellenists? These are Greek influence. We're not supposed to go to, we're not supposed to, go to Antioch and talk to them? What do you mean we've got to only stay in the synagogues? So I do find it interesting that the church starts to, even in that point, starts to kind of push that envelope. 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. A great number believed and turned to the Lord. News of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. You remember this from last week? I had somebody contact us this week and said, I never realized the value of the Barnabases in my life. I thought that was a good take on last Tuesday night. So they were listening well. They sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch, 23. When he came, he had seen the grace of God. He was glad. He encouraged them all with the purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. Good job, Barnabas. In a church world that is struggling to get the gospel out, here comes good old Barnabas that goes, hey, man, grace is working. I'm encouraging you. Move on with the Lord because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, I was tempted to stop there. But I thought, no, I want to show you one more thing. So just this is, we're in the weeds just a little bit right here, but I'm just going to read it anyway because I want to show you the actions of the church, first century. 
Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Way to go, Barnabas. Church had kicked Saul out, by the way. Saul was way too spunky. Way too on fire. And he caused so many problems, they sent him to Tarsus for 13 years. Get out of here. You, we can't handle what you're too on fire for the Lord. And so they got rid of him. Because sometimes they'll do that to you, too. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So there's the first place, which was, which was originally a term of derision. These, these who follow Christ. And they thought they were making fun of them. And it, it stuck because they went, yeah, that sounds good. Follower of Christ. They thought they were making fun of them. Uh, and they first called Christians in Antioch. Uh, next verse. And in these days, here, here's what I wanted you to see. In these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now I want to pause here for a moment. We have a prophet prophesying that there's going to be a famine on the earth. This does not... This doesn't make him a false prophet. This doesn't make him a prophet of doom or a prophet of the devil. This is God showing him that there's going to be something bad happen on the earth and he's warning God's people on how to prepare. I think God still does this. Here's where we screw this up. All right? Agabus still exists in the church. The difference is Agabus today would preach that the famine's coming because you people did this and this and this and the Supreme Court did this and the government did this and the Congress did this and the church is doing this and God's going to come down and do this. There's no mention of that from Agabus. Agabus does not say, thus saith the Lord, because of sin, God's going to bring a famine. He doesn't even say God's bringing the famine. He just warns you there's a famine coming because God still knows how to prepare you for doom. That's not of the devil. What's of the devil is to blame God and blame sin and blame anger, and blame judgment, and blame vengeance. Why can't we just say, look, the world's rough, man. There's some bad things happening, and thus saith the Lord, get your house in order, get some stuff together. Instead, we got to try to monopolize it, monetize it, and we got to turn it into something you can write a book about, and God gets a black eye every time, and the rest of the church does as well, and, and it can easily be refuted through the new covenant that God's not against people, that he's for people. And yet, he doesn't stop warning us of the bad. And so we see this in Acts. And what do they do? Next verse. The, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. They got out ahead of it. You know what? There's a famine coming. We're going to go ahead and take care of our brethren. Because this is what we do. We're a church. We take care of each other. Each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren of Jerusalem. This they did. They sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. What does it not say? This is why I had to wander out into the weeds here. Agabus doesn't blame it on God, and the church doesn't make tithing obligatory. The second that they need to take up an offering, they start throwing the law of Moses in there and going, you got to give this much. Thus saith the Lord, something bad's going to happen if you don't. No, they just look at each person and go, whatever you can give. There's a famine coming. Can you guys give? What can you 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 give? And the answer is going to be different because you're not going to give what he can give, what she can give, what they can give, what I can give. It doesn't have to be anybody's business, but it also doesn't have to be compulsory. And I got to throw the law in and put guilt and condemnation and shame on people. And so let's be released from this, but don't be released from giving. Give as you have the ability to give. And give as led by the Spirit. That's what the church is trying to teach us here. 
is to say, look, man, there are people in need. Don't you want to help them? Yes, I do want to help them. What can I do to help? Maybe that's money. Maybe that's my time. Maybe that's my effort. Maybe that's giving them something. Maybe it's doing something for them. I don't know. Notice there's no rules in giving. There's just follow the spirit. And when you put rules on giving, you choke out people's ability to follow the spirit because you know very well what happens. The moment you put rules on giving, people try to follow the rules and then they stop giving past that. Because why would you give any more than what God required for you to give in order for God to bless you financially? God tells you, if you give this much, I'll bless you financially. Why would you give this much? What are you, stupid? I mean, if, you're gonna, if this is the baseline for getting, why would you give more? And why in the world would you give less if this is going to be bankruptcy and then this is going to be paying your bills? Then what's this? Unless you can create a doctrine that goes, well, that's the super rich. Tell that to the unbelieving guy that's never tithed a day in his life. That always stunned me. People go, well, if you give more, God will bless you more. And I'd pick out like some billionaire I'd seen on the cover of Time and went, boy, I wonder what church he's given to naively, like he's giving to a church. You go, no, it doesn't have anything to do with, we're not buying God off. The Holy Spirit can't be purchased. By the way, that's coming up in the book of Acts. When a guy walks up to Peter and goes, pulls his wallet out and pulls money out and goes, how much would it take to, for me to do this? And Peter goes, you have no idea how insulting this question is. You cannot buy the Holy Spirit. A passage that we kind of act like not even in the Bible. <laughs> like That doesn't even exist. And so what we see is the church stretching and expanding. Did you, I bet you didn't realize there was so much meat right there in this, that little passage. Because sometimes what they don't tell you is what they're telling you. If you'll pay attention. And sometimes what you don't have spelled out is exactly what you need. Let's land. I liked this paragraph. The river of God's love carries the eternal life of God's spirit. That river's like any other river. It presses on, finds a crack or a crevice, or it just creates a whole new path. Over time, any river will cut through rock, and the gospel is no different. If man hesitate, God finds a way. The story of Acts proceeds through the death of James, the imprisonment of Peter, and on to the ministry of Paul. It reads quickly, like it can't move on from these characters fast enough. They are drags against the current. He leaves them behind and proceeds with the man that will develop the faith like none before him. Scholars attribute the shift in tone to the fact that Paul controlled the narrative and thus the story follows Paul. I don't doubt this plays a role, but I also suspect that the story flows where the river goes. Paul accepts the call to the Gentiles and the story follows the river. Because when you get to chapter 16, the pronouns change. In chapter 16, the pronouns are we. Luke, the writer, stops talking about the church. They, they, they. And he starts saying, we, we. Because he's with Paul. And the story leaves Peter. Did you know that after the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, there's no more Peter in the book of Acts? After the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, a little bit of James, a little bit of John, a little bit of Apollos, tons of Paul. Paul's everywhere in that book, everywhere after the, after the council in Jerusalem. And I, I, some scholars say that that's because Paul controls it, but I don't. I think the Holy Spirit follows the river of God's love. And whatever character's willing to float down that river, the Holy Spirit's going to follow them. And Paul's the one that accepted the call. Here's two verses to show you that. We close. Acts 9.15, the Lord said to him, this is Jesus talking, go. He's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. This is Jesus speaking to Ananias going, he's coming, go bless him, 
I picked him to preach to the Gentiles. And Paul says it this way, Galatians 1, 15, 16. When it pleased God, he separated me from my mother's womb and he called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Paul knew that he was supposed to preach Jesus among the Gentiles. I, I, I don't want to skip this, guys. I know this has nothing to do with tonight, but this is one of my favorite moments from the book of Galatians. And I'm not dare going to put this verse up and not show you this. He called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, not to me. I love that. Saul did not have Jesus revealed to him. He had Jesus revealed in him. Because you want to know where he lives? In us. We just don't figure it out until we meet him in his death and allow him to resurrect. And Paul grabbed that little piece of theology. So he revealed his son in me told me I was called to go to the Gentiles. So the Bible follows Paul. You want to know why? Because he got out of town. He took the gospel and he went, all right, let's get this thing out there. Let's don't be on the wrong side of history. Let's follow the river. Get out of town. I don't know what that means for you individually. I just know that I want to go where his spirit goes and love what he loves and follow him. Let's pray. A lot of info there tonight. How do we pray when there's a lot of info? I don't know. A lot of times I really don't know. So I just ask the Lord to do what he wants to do. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the word. Thank you for this chance to explore the early church and all of their failures and all of their successes. And it doesn't mean that we failed in the same way. It doesn't mean we'll succeed in the same way. It just means we're following the same Holy Spirit. Teach us what that looks like. As we get out of our little town, and I think what that means is be ready and be willing to move. Move on from your mindsets, move on from your ideologies, move on from your things because the Holy Spirit is not a stagnant pond, He's, a living, he's living water. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.